Ladies and gentlemen, friends, welcome to the National Library of Australia and to the annual Seymour Biography Lecture. I'm Murray-Louise Ayres, Director General of the National Library of Australia. As we begin, I acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight. I thank their elders, past, present and emerging, for their continuing care of this land from which the library does its work for the nation. It's a great pleasure to see so many of you here for this year's Seymour Biography Lecture, uh, which is a highlight on our spring calendar, and I'm sure many of you will have been to a few of these lectures over the years. Tonight is a celebration of telling true stories about people's lives, but it's also an opportunity to explore the craft of life writing in all its forms. The lecture is a gift to the Australian community by John and Heather Seymour, who have both told me not to mention their names, and they know that I was going to disobey them. <laughs> but they're both with us this evening. I think it is a real gift to the community to have this opportunity to kind of consider this on an annual basis. What is this thing that we call biography and life writing? And we certainly could not do the lecture without them. John and Heather are passionate supporters of the library and really are knowledgeable advocates for the literary forms that we call biography, autobiography and memoir. Many of us share this passion, especially when we're trying to understand personal, familial and cultural milieus, the things that make leaders tick, or when we are trying to engage with a life experience that reflects our own or indeed a life experience that is very far from our own. But John and Heather have chosen to express their interest in this form through their support for the lecture and also for an annual scholarship which gives a young scholar the opportunity to work here intensively for six weeks as part of really becoming the life writer of the future. So John and Heather, thank you. Now, we're very privileged to have broadcaster Richard Fidler presenting this year's lecture, and I have to say it's the first time I've heard people clap as the, as the speaker steps into the theatre. <laughs> no pressure. Um, so Richard, of course, hosts a brilliant hour-long interview show, Conversations on ABC Radio, and I suspect that I'm not the only person here tonight addicted to it, you know, either live or as a podcast, and perhaps you, like me, have been thinking today about your top three three Richard Feidler conversations. Richard guests have, have ranged from renowned politicians, authors and astronauts to little-known yet remarkable playwrights, mountaineers, restaurateurs and beekeepers, and that's only in the last month. <laughs> in addition to radio, Richard has written historical books with Ghost Empire and Sagaland both featuring short biographies of historical figures from Byzantium and medieval Iceland. Uh, so he's a man of, of certainly of many talents and uh, we'll be hearing about his consideration tonight or an exploration perhaps of the tensions that come into play um, in the different forms of writing lives and perhaps particularly bringing a living person talking about their lived experience to a listening audience. So please join me in welcoming Richard Fadler to present the 2018 Seymour Biography Lecture.
Hello. Thank you very much for that very kind and warm introduction. And I want to thank the Seymours again, of course, for making this lovely event possible. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, and I'm honoured and delighted to be here. I've called this lecture Telling and Writing the Story, because I'd like to illustrate some of the differences between presenting someone life's, someone's life story on the page and on the air. It's been a while since I lived in Canberra as a grubby undergraduate at ANU. And I'm afraid I have written this lecture as an es not like an essay with a thesis and a whole bunch of tightly argued paragraphs with a compelling conclusion. Instead, I thought I'd take you through some of the things I've discovered while presenting a radio program that's largely biographical and how that work affected the writing of two books, Ghost Empire, based around the medieval empire of Constantinople, and Sagaland, which I co-authored with my friend Kauri Gislason, where the action takes place around the sagas of medieval Iceland. Along the way, it's a process that's taken me through the slums of Istanbul, the remote northwest fjords of Iceland, and the dank, unholy confines of an ABC radio studio. <laughs> Firstly, though, a warning about the dangers of biography. In April 1988, I was a young 20-something browsing through a bookshop in St. Mark's Place in New York City, and I picked up a copy of The Path to Power, the first volume of Robert A. Caro's multi-volume biography of the life of Lyndon Johnson, the 36th President of the United States. The book was handsome and pleasingly weighty in my hands, and like all good biographies, it was big enough to stun a burglar. <laughs> the Path to Power was a wholly absorbing biography for me. Caro introduces us to a Lyndon Johnson who is as oversized as Texas tall with huge hands, long arms and ears, and a domineering, smothering personality. We meet the young Lyndon Johnson, fleeing from the poverty of Texas Hill Country, propelling himself frantically towards significance and political power. In Washington, Johnson becomes a congressional staffer and then gets elected to his own seat in Congress, and he takes care to select talented staff members who are as desperate as him to escape the humiliating poverty of rural Texas, but they soon find they've exchanged one form of humiliation for another, as their frantic, overbearing boss comes to dominate and subsume their lives. Johnson's staff would be expected to work from dawn to late at night. Their smallest errors would be screamed at by the boss or treated with wounding derision. Even as president, Johnson would order speechwriters and stenographers to follow him into the bathroom where he would give dictation while seated on the toilet. <laughs> Ew. Robert Caro spoke to staffers who were still haunted by Johnson's domineering personality long after he died. One talented speechwriter had left Johnson's office after just six months. He told Caro he knew that if he stayed, he would wind up having Johnson's portrait hanging in his living room and he would have to name his kids after the bastard, so he got out. <laughs> I wonder if Robert Caro, though, fade, failed to heed the warning of that staffer. Because I bought that first volume of The Path to Power 30 years ago. 30 years ago, I bought the second volume when it came out in 1990, the third in 2002. The most recent volume, called The Passage to Power of Power, appeared in 2012, and that just covered his vice presidency and the assassination of JFK and the transition into the presidency. Earlier this year, Robert Caro said the final volume might come out in two years or 10 years, he's not sure. Robert A. Caro is now 82 years old. <laughs> 
from beyond the grave, it seems Lyndon Johnson has managed to gobble up yet another man's life. There is a warning in this, I think, for biographers. If you're going in, make sure you keep an eye on the exits. I'm relatively new to the business of presenting people's lives on the page, but I've been doing it for some years now on the radio. My program conversations is often biographical. The life of a guest is compressed into an hour. It's really a format that lives somewhere between biography and autobiography. It's the guest telling their story, not me. But my producers and I have worked hard to shape that story and make it flow through the course of the hour. I imagine myself, while I'm going to air, as a convener of an intimate conversation with just three people around a tiny little cafe table, a very, very small cafe table, peopled by just three people, myself, the guest, and the listener. There is a heavy load of work that goes into every single show. Often the guest is unknown to the wider world, and there's very little about them on the public record. But the nature of the show is, I think, very subjective. The voice you hear is human and fallible, and I think that's understood by listeners. We do take some precautionary measures before we bring a guest on air. We ask ourselves, is the guest's version of events too self-aggrandizing, too self-contradictory, too many elisions around a tricky subject? Presenting a life on the page, though, is a very different business. There are several narrative liberties, I discovered, that are affordable to the author that are denied to the broadcaster. On the page, the written page, the narrative can sprawl back and forth in time much more easily. Individual stories can run in parallel, then intersect, and then run off in different directions. Radio, however, is much more linear, much more linear. It requires more narrative discipline. But it can roll forward with enormous didactic force and momentum, and it has the luster and texture of the human voice to bring you in, to hold you in, to beguile you. Radio narrative tends to move like a shark, knifing through the water in a linear manner in search of blood and horror. <laughs> Actually, that last bit's not true. I just added that to make it sound more impressive. <laughs> but the narrative of written biography proceeds to, it seems to be more like a Portuguese man of war, floating along in a stately manner, tangled with all sorts of bits and pieces, pulling them all along more or less at the same time. The different exigencies of these two mediums, of presenting a life through the voice and the page, were really brought home to me a few years back while making a radio documentary series in Iceland. I travelled to Iceland in the summer of 2015 with my good friend Kauri Gislason. He and I were there to make a series for Radio National called Sagaland, which we later expanded into the book. Kauri's lived most of his life in Australia, but he was born in Iceland, and he loves the country of his birth with all the tragic passion of the exile. He and I became friends after he appeared as a guest on my radio program I'd read his memoir, and so I kind of knew his life before I even met him, which is an odd and slightly stalkerish way to begin a friendship. <laughs> Kari has a doctorate in medieval Icelandic literature, like so many people here this evening, I know. <laughs> and one night while we were drinking in a bar in Brisbane, he mentioned in passing the sagas of Iceland. Now, I'd imagine the sagas were tales of, you know, warriors and fantastic monsters like Beowulf. And he said, oh, no, 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 that's not it at all. The sagas are not fantasy. They're not Tolkien. They're the family stories of the Vikings who first came to Iceland a thousand years ago. They're about real people who actually existed. 
The sagas merged from a poetic storytelling tradition brought to Iceland by the Norwegian Vikings when they came to settle on that remote island way back in the 9th and 10th centuries. In Old Norse, the word saga simply means a telling. And in the frozen dark of the winter months, Icelanders would sit in their longhouses and remember dark family feuds or the loss of a beautiful child at sea or the revenge of a mistreated woman. And these family stories were told and retold and retold and no doubt they grew in the telling. I asked Kari that night to tell me a saga story right there and then in the bar. And this is how he began. This is what medieval Icelandic biography sounds like. This is the beginning of the saga, we call it, of Gunnar and Helgeth. Gunnar of Hlitherendi was a gifted, brave and capable young man. He swam like a seal. He was powerfully athletic. They say he could jump as far backwards as he could forwards. When he mounted his horse, he would run up behind it with his halberd and pole vault himself into the saddle. He was slow to make friends, but loyal to those who were close. Gunnar had just returned to Iceland from Norway, where he'd won some fame as a warrior, even though he hated to kill. In the summer, Gunnar made the journey to Thingvatlir, to the annual assembly, as he walked through the rift. People couldn't stop looking at him, for he seemed to have everything. He was handsome and wealthy and well-traveled. Gunnar arrived at Thingvatlir wearing a fine cloak and a golden arm bracelet given to him by the Jarl of Norway. He followed the path by the stream, and there he encountered the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. Her name was Helgeth. He sat down next to her, and they began to talk. And after an hour or so, Gunnar said to her, Helgeth, are you married? And she said, you can't possibly want to know the answer to that question. And he said, well, what if I do? And she said, then you better go and talk to my father. So he went a little further along the path and met Helgeth's father and said he wanted to marry his daughter. And the father said, Gunnar, you're a good man. We like you. You should not marry Helgeth. <laughs> She's already had two husbands, and both of them are dead. <laughs> you can feel the momentum of narrative there, and that's just a lovely thing. Now, we do know for a fact that Gunnar and Helgeth were once living, breathing human beings. Their names are recorded in Islandica book, the Icelandic genealogical database, which goes all the way back to the ninth century and contains the name of every Icelander that ever lived. But could Gunnar really leap onto his horse like that? Is it possible for anyone to jump as far backwards as forwards? This historical Viking farmer was already straining at the leash of plausibility. Was this biography laced with hyperbole or fiction based on a real person? Well, saga scholars are still arguing over that one. The sagas, as they were told between family members, were memorised and passed down by generation after generation until the 13th century when they were put to paper at last, most probably by Icelandic monks whose names are lost to us. Iceland was approaching a crisis at the time, which may have galvanised them into recording these tales in case they became lost. The authors scratched them onto sheets of hideously expensive calfskin vellum. And crucially, they wrote them down not in Latin, which was the scholarly language of the time, but in the Icelandic vernacular. It was intended they should be read aloud, enjoyed, and passed on. 
Clearly the sagas were not ornaments on the fabric of their lives, but part of the fabric itself. And like all biographies, they spring from that deep-seated human need to understand the context of our own lives by remembering the world of our ancestors, the people who came before us. They also allow us to indulge in a bit of time travel, which I think is the real deep secret pleasure of writing and reading biography. Today, every Icelander is brought up with the sagas and they learn them like we learn Shakespeare. It's said that without the sagas, Icelanders wouldn't know how to be Icelandic. It's made them a particularly literate people. There are more published authors in Iceland per head of population than in any other nation in the world. They spend all their time, essentially, writing and reading each other's books. <laughs> Icelanders have a saying, ad ganga med boki maganum, which means every Icelander has a book in their stomach. By the time the sagas were put to the page in the 13th century, Christianity was then well entrenched in Iceland and the paganism of their ancestors was, was somewhat abhorrent to them. But still the saga, honors, uh, saga authors honoured their ancestral debt by presenting these people to us as fully human rather than as wicked and ignorant brutes. It's an astonishing achievement. If the sagas fall short of modern standards of biographical rigour, they do succeed in illustrating larger truths of what it meant to be alive and walking around on that impossible island in the Middle Ages. The English poet W.H. Auden admitted he was obsessed by the sagas. He used to like to say he was never not thinking about Iceland. Auden was startled by the uncompromising and violent tenor of life described in the sagas, but as he discovered, there's a great deal more to the lives of these Vikings than extortion and revenge. Those of us who grew up with the caricature of the mindless Viking brute hacking and slashing his way through medieval Europe are likely to be shocked by the emotional complexity and the intensity of feeling which the saga authors lend to these historical figures. Jorge Luis Borges discovered the sagas as a boy in his father's library. Borges felt compelled to make several pilgrimages to Iceland in his life. The great Argentine author made his last trip to Reykjavik when he was blind and 71 years old. Nonetheless, the awesome bleakness of Iceland stirred some deep romantic impulse, and he summoned the courage to kiss his assistant, Maria Kodama, who later became his wife and then his widow. It was the first time Borges had kissed anyone in nearly 50 years. Borges and Auden saw the sagas, as I do, as com a compelling means of escape into another time and place and perhaps into an ever so slightly different way of being human. An historian whose name I can't recall once said of the ancient Romans that the ancient Romans are about 90% recognisable to modern humans, but the remaining 10% is quite alien to us. And so it is with the Vikings of Iceland. They share all our modern preoccupations with family and love and politics and work and status, all that stuff. But there's one aspect of their lives that seems strange, and that's the highly charged concept of honour in the Viking world. Viking honour is not something that grows and flourishes, like love or Christian goodwill. Honour is more like currency. It's finite, and there's only so much honour to go around. Honour can't be earned. It must be taken from someone else. And this is Gunnar's problem at the start of his tale. He's returned to Iceland with a fine cloak and a bracelet, He's one famous as a warrior, which is even worse. 
Gunnar has too much honor. And so he's asking for trouble. And so, spoiler alert, the saga does not end well for him. <laughs> anyway, the saga of Gunnar and Holgeth that Kari told me that night was enthralling. And it held me and the half dozen other eavesdroppers who were listening in as he told me this story at the bar, uh, all of us quite still. It was obvious to me in that moment that these sagas, these Viking biographies, would translate so beautifully into a radio program and to a podcast. There's something so pure about that oral tradition. And that's how he and I came to be in Iceland in the summer of 2015. Now, our plan was to record four stories about four people from the sagas, stories of people who lived and walked around that island a thousand years ago. And we also had a family mystery to solve, to find out if there was a blood connection between Kauri and the greatest of the saga authors. Kauri and I spent our first week in Iceland traveling to the spectacular old Viking Parliament site at Thingvellir, which takes place in a rift between two te tectonic plates in the Earth's surface. And then we went to the grassy slopes of Gunnar's farm in Hlitherendi, which is still a working farm today. The first two sagas we'd recorded adapted very easily to the radio format. They had distinct central characters, a strong narrative spine, and they sounded magical when recorded beside a trickling stream or in a field of high grass. But then we came to the third saga story that Kauri had chosen. This was the life of Gisli, the fugitive. That's where we hit a bit of a snag. At this point, we were staying in a cabin in the south of Iceland. Now, the coastal lands of the south of Iceland are so spectacular. On the deck of that cabin, on a summer's day, I could see in the distance the flat cone of Mount Hecla, a volcano so fierce it was once believed to be the hell prison of Judas Iscariot. Further down the road was that other volcano, you know, the one that exploded in 2010, sending plumes of ash all over Europe. It took several weeks of patient tutoring from Kari to enable me to say its name, which is, I'm still getting it wrong, I'm sure, Eyjafjallajökull. Jökull. Uh, before then, I was calling it Eyjafjallajökull Gökull, which really annoyed him. So that afternoon in the cabin, Kari was telling me, um, he's telling me he was having a bit of a struggle to assemble all the events of the story in a kind of a linear manner for the radio. And maybe I might want to read the saga in its original form myself, in its translated form, I should say, so I can see if I could come up with some ideas. So I flopped down on the couch in the cabin and I read his Penguin Classics translation of Geesley's saga. As I read and as I turned each page, I became more and more worried. After 10 pages, I wondered if we'd ever figure out a way to present this Viking story to a radio audience. It certainly wasn't lacking in drama. Hell no. The question we had to answer was, how do we take this sprawling and complex family story and pour it through the narrow funnel of spoken narrative? And this was an odd question, because the saga had begun its life as a spoken narrative. But the narrative was wickedly complex. Gudrun Nordl, the saga scholar, had a lovely phrase for it. She said, the people in Gisli's saga are doomed in their intricacies. Well, we had to find a way to make those intricacies understandable. The saga of Gisli begins with a conclave of four friends. They go to the local assembly, and these four guys make a bit of a show of themselves. And this irritates the onlookers. And one of them predicts ominously, those four young men won't be as close in three years as they are now. Now, Gisli, who was one of the four, overhears this, and he decides that he'll refute this by binding 
his friends to him and each other through a fourfold pact of blood brotherhoodship. And so they cut their arms to let the blood drip onto the soil and to mulch it up with their hands. That's the ritual. Now, straight away as I'm reading this, that sounds great, but four is not a great number for radio. Four friends, okay? Three is much better. Listeners who might just hang on for a third name tend to switch off after that. And the names were tricky. For a start, there's Geisley. Then there's his brother, Thorkel. Then his brother-in-law, Thorgrim, who's married to the sister, Thordis. And the fourth, fourth man in the circle is Geisley's best friend, Viesten. Now, can you picture what that name, Viesten, is? Can you even remember now the names of more than one of those characters and how they connect through kinship? Even the most enthusiastic listeners would struggle to sustain that Venn diagram of relationships in their heads, and I knew people would get lost. Now, on the page, it's not so bad. The eye can scan the previous page, go backwards and forwards, you can check who's who, and you can still remain immersed in the narrative. But the radio listener can't do that. And if you're listening to it as a podcast, well, you might want to tap the 15-second rewind button to check back on who was the brother again and who was the brother-in-law and who was the best friend, but that's not good because the podcast listener has then had to snap out of the medieval world of blood brotherhood and cold iron and icy seawater and is now standing in the middle of the cat food section of Coles searching for a button on their iPhone. <laughs> so what to do? Well, in an audio medium, you can, when you're confronted by a problem of overwhelming narrative complexity, sometimes it's simply best to step back and confess the problem to the listener. So I thought, when we introduce this saga, I'll just have to say something like, okay, so there's four men, Gisli, Thorkil, Thorgrim, and Viesten. It's complicated. Don't get too hung up on the names right now. What matters here is that some of these friends are fated to kill each other. That's, that's a bit better. That's okay. Right, we're, now we're still listening here, aren't we? We're still, we're still with that. Okay. So still lying on the couch, I pressed on with Gisli's saga, but then the tangled web just got more twisted. It turns out that Thorkel's wife, Asketh, used to have a thing for Viesten, who happens to be the brother of Oath, who's the wife of Gisli. Are we keeping up with this? And Oath, it seems, once had a thing for Thorkrim, Gisli's brother-in-law. Yipe. The web of interrelationships was beginning to look like a Canberra action bus map. <laughs> but it's important to the narrative. It's this crush of family and intermarriage that's going to give the drama that follows all its energy. The most shocking thing in Gisli's saga sits just below the surface. It's the unspoken implication that Gisli, the chief protagonist, our man of honour, is partly driven by an incestuous attraction to his sister, Thotis. And she can't admit to himself, of course. Now, this is the moment in the saga when I knew we could make it work for a radio audience. Because Gisli decides he must avenge the death of his best friend by killing Thorkrim, his brother-in-law. So in the dead of night, Geesley creeps into the farmhouse with his spear. The room is perfectly dark. Geesley approaches the bed. He slips his cold hand under the covers and places it on his sister's breast. And she thinks it's her husband. And she says, do you want me to roll over to you, Thorkrim? So Geesley has to stand there silently in the dark listening to them couple with each other while impotently clutching his spear. How Freudian is that? <laughs> Waiting for the couple to finish making love. His sister to make love. Gisli waits for them to fall asleep again. And the saga says he raises his spear 
and plunges it into Thorgrim's chest so hard that his spear lodges in the planks at the foot of the bed. You see, now you're listening. (laughs) Now you want to know what happens next. Again, spoiler alert, things don't end well for Geesley. (laughs) Geesley, in his final years, hides out in a remote fjord far northwest of Iceland. So Carrie and I went all the way out there just to see what it was like to this bleak, rocky fjord. It's like a moonscape. On the day we were there, there was a fierce wind blowing in from the North Atlantic, cold enough to sting the ears, but nothing in the landscape moved. It was that lifeless, just little tiny tufts of weeds. And the saga records that Geesley and his wife Earth built a ragged little farm on the water's edge while they were hiding out. But one night, two killers came looking for Geesley at the farmhouse, but by then he'd escaped into the hills. So the killers confront Oath in the farmhouse and offered her 300 pieces of silver to give them his whereabouts. After he's killed, they said, we'll arrange a better marriage for you. Maybe you're right, said Oath. Money is better than grieving. So the killers tipped the silver into her lap. She put the pieces into a small sack and asked one of the men if she could do whatever she wanted with the money. Of course, he said, it's yours. So she got to her feet and swung the bag of silver into his face, smashing his nose. Now, she said, you can tell everyone the fine story of when your nose was broken by a woman. (laughs) Well, that's awesome, isn't it? I mean, that's amazing. It's not hard to imagine another generation of Vikings chortling over that, just like you did now. (laughs) By the time we finished the radio series of Sargland, I was starting to write my first book, Ghost Empire. Ghost Empire is a history of the city of Constantinople, the second Rome, the capital of the later Roman Empire, which historians call Byzantium. The modern-day version of it is, of course, Istanbul. Sometimes the phrase, biography of a city, is employed for such books, and it's not a bad analogy. I mean, a city is born, it flourishes, weakens, recovers, and in the case of Constantinople, it experienced a terrible, violent death after a long decline with the invasion of the Ottoman Turks in the year 1453. A great city has a complex, many-sided character, and it can engender a kind of love in people. When you live in a city for a long time, a comfortable intimacy sets in, a bit like an old marriage. Ghost Empire was peopled with short biographies of great historical figures like Constantine the Great and the imperial power couple Justinian and Theodora. It was also a pleasure to meet some compelling but lesser known people like Irene of Athens, Anna Comnena, and the very last of the Roman emperors, Constantine XI, who died at the walls of Constantinople in 1453. And the story of that last emperor, Constantine XI, just haunted me. And I still think about him all the time. Constantine XI possessed deep reserves of courage and fortitude that sustained him in the city's terrible final ordeal. It was his awful fate to inherit the throne just as the empire's final crisis was already engulfing it. I think biography at some level should be a profound act of sympathy extended across time and space to the subject. So I went with my son to Istanbul to see the site of the last stand of the last emperor for myself. As we stood atop the ancient Theodosian walls that course through the suburbs of modern-day Istanbul, I tried to imagine the last emperor's sense of horror and futility as he looked down upon the vast army of the Ottoman Empire pressing at the gates. 
And the more I read of the doomed emperor, Constantine XI, from the multiple primary sources that document the fall of the city, the greater the affection I felt for him as someone who made the very best of a very bad situation. Writing about him created a strange sense of intimacy with him, which of course was entirely illusory because the poor bugger is dead and he's in no position to reciprocate my affection for him. Yet when I wrote the last sentence of that book, I felt a small pang of grief to leave him there, to leave his bones there, buried under a wall in Istanbul. After I finished Ghost Empire, Kari and I got to work on the book of Sagaland. We decided to write alternating chapters. One of the narrative tasks I was assigned was to write the life story of the greatest of the saga authors, an Icelander from the 13th century named Snorri Sturluson. Now, Snorri Sturluson is revered today in Iceland. He wrote three classic works, a family saga, a history saga, and most significantly, he wrote the Prose Edda. This is the source of much of what we know of the Norse gods. All the stuff you're seeing in Marvel Comics movies these days, Thor, Odin, Loki, Hela, this all came from the pen of a well-padded Icelandic lawyer writing in a remote farmhouse in medieval Iceland. Neil Gaiman's best-selling book on Norse mythology owes everything to Snorri Sturluson. Snorri is Iceland's national hero. There's a shrine, a statue, a street, and a beer named after him. And he was a good beer too. And he was murdered in his cellar by his enemies in the year 1241. One of our missions in Iceland was to find out if something Kari's father had once told him was true, that Kari is a direct descendant of Snorri Sturluson's. I thought we'd better go looking for the historical Snorri instead of the statue. And I found a primary source in Sturlunga saga, which happened to be written by Snorri's nephew. The nephew, Sturla, has a slightly flat writing style but he is decidedly not in awe of his famous uncle, which makes him a, a reasonably reliable narrator. Snorri's story appears in dribs and drabs throughout Sturlunga saga, and I found that when I pulled these bits and pieces together, Snorri came sharply into focus, not as a builder, not as a national hero, but as a wrecker. Unlike Constantine, the more I read of Snorri, the less I thought of his reputation. Iceland in Snorri's time had moved a long way from its egalitarian habits. Power had become concentrated in the hands of a few powerful families. Snorri, who was the cleverest chieftain of his time, was as responsible as anyone for this awful social distortion. He loved power and wealth and honour too much. Icelanders treasure their early history when the island was an independent commonwealth in the Middle Ages. But I discovered that Snorri connived to sell out Iceland's independence to Norway so long as he would be appointed the first Jarl of Iceland. He undermined the Republic so he could be an uncrowned king. As an ardent Republican, I naturally found this repugnant. Snorri, I discovered, screwed his allies, enemies and family members alike and was shocked when they came after him for revenge. Even so, just like the last emperor of Constantinople, the moment of Snorri's death is poignant. Hiding in his cellar, Snorri is discovered by his enemies. The seething assassins unsheathe their swords. Snorri is an old man in his 60s, armed with nothing but his chiefly authority to bring to his defence. The saga records that Snorri's last moment was a defiant one. He utters a command, you will not strike. The men hesitate. Again he commands, you will not strike. One assassin, assassin edges forward and then thrusts his sword into Snorri. More sword thrusts follow. 
and then the cleverest man in Iceland lies dead of his wounds on his cellar floor. Today, Snorri's old farm estate at Reykholt in Iceland is a national shrine to the great man. It contains a museum, a church, and a library. The statue of Snorri out the front is pleasingly modest, but ultimately quite absurd. They've dressed him as a saintly Lutheran, even though Lutheranism didn't even exist in the 13th century. Snorri loved food and beer and sex and conversation and power way too much to be considered a pious martyr. Around the corner, Kari and I found Snorri's old outdoor thermal bath. Such things are common around Iceland. And there was a small tunnel that connected the bath to his farmhouse. Kari and I sat in that tunnel, trying to imagine Snorri's awful, squalid death. And I wondered then if his last words had been mistranslated. If instead of, you will not strike, he really said, don't strike. <laughs> Which would have been perfectly understandable under the circumstances. I soon had my answer to that question, whether if Icelanders could cope with the idea that their national hero cowered in his moment of death, if they could cope with that idea. I soon found the, an the answer to that question when I entered the museum. As I was looking at a panel in the museum that described these last moments of Snorri, an Icelandic lady sidled up next to me and she whispered, you know, I'm very certain Snorri never said, you will not strike. And I said, really? What do you think he said? I think he said, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> and my priest agrees with me. <laughs> I had to take Carrie out very quickly before he said something very rude at that point. Now, when I'm writing, I don't try and place myself above my subject very often. In my mind, I'm really sitting beside them in the car, asking them questions about the scenery as it passes by. It's only when I'm finished that I like to take the view from 30,000 feet and draw some conclusions about the life in full. And I try to do the same thing as a broadcaster with my radio program, Conversations. I began with Conversations back in 2005, and right at the outset, the program had a foundational ethic and aesthetic to create more space and time for storytelling and reflection. And most importantly, that it would regularly feature people who were unknown to the wider community, everyday people who had seen and done remarkable things. We found listeners particularly loved those stories because they felt they could measure their own lives against them more easily than against a Hollywood actor or a powerful politician. But such guests are hard to find. And sometimes when we do find them, they struggle to tell their story coherently, to assemble all their, the elements of their lives into a shape that would make sense to a listener. And that's hardly surprising because life is messy. It's not like a curated museum of memory where everything is in its place. Life is more like a teenager's bedroom with dirty clothes all over the floor, rotting school lunches stashed under the bed and a vague troubling smell lingering over the whole environment. It's messy. That's life. If you reflect on your own life for half a minute, you'll find long stretches where nothing much seems to happen, but small achievements build up and some problems are allowed to metastasize. There are moments of love and kindness, as well as moments of indifference and mulish stupidity. There are things that have been said and done that make no sense and would require a decade of therapy to understand. And how reliable is memory anyway? I have sat alongside a friend while he regaled a dinner party with a funny story about me, where this friend was front and centre of the action, except I knew for a fact that this friend was not there at all. He had once heard me tell this story <laughs> and had somehow transposed himself 
magically into the scene. When he finished, I quietly said to him, I waited for him to finish, and I said, you weren't there. You just weren't there. I can't tell you how shocked he was when he realised he had not indeed been present. He had co-opted one of my memories as his own without ever being aware of it. Lem Sisse, the British poet who I spoke to recently in Byron Bay, told me that his definition of family is kind of interesting. He said, family for him is a group of disputed memories between a group of people over a lifetime. It's a bunch of people arguing over the same photo. On conversations, we have to take that messiness of life and the subjectivity of memory into account and make some allowances for it. Most of the time, basic chronology gives us a structure to make the mess of life seem more rational than it really is. One event after another, after another, after another. And I think the subjectivity of memory is understood and accepted and taken into account by the listener, partly because the story is carried by the voice. Human fallibility is built into the texture of the human voice, much more so than on the authoritative page. Listeners can hear authentic tenderness, brokenness, regret, evasiveness, disingenuousness, almost didn't get that last syllable there, and delight. As a presenter, I try to subtly uh, underline the subjectivity of the experience for the listener. This is why so many of my questions are couched in terms of what do you remember instead of simply asking what happened. The moment I know it's really working with the guest is when a memory suddenly seems to flicker in front of the guest's eyes, like a movie, and the guest falls into a kind of a reverie, narrating the sequence of events as they unfold before their eyes. When that happens, that's so lovely. It makes such beautiful radio. And while it's happening, I try to almost not breathe. I don't move at all, and I try not to breathe at all. Absolutely do nothing to break the reverie of that guest. One of my favourite examples of this is when I had Angela Lansbury on the program. Now, normally we're a bit allergic to famous actors because they tend to go, oh, what's this show? It's Australia. I'll calibrate a bit of energy. And I don't think you guys really want to hear how amazing it is to work with Steven Spielberg, do you, really? So, um, so I was a bit sceptical, funnily enough, but then I looked into her life and career and I realised that no one had ever given her a good interview. She'd been interviewed by Larry King and he'd talked two-thirds the way through the interview. This is Angela Lansbury, yes, from Murder, She Wrote, but who was also in Gaslight, who was the wicked mother in The Manchurian Candidate, who was Elvis's mother in Blue Hawaii, who had an amazing career in Broadway as well, who'd seen and done amazing things. And she was so ready to talk. And right at the start, I asked her what she remembered of her childhood in London, and she gave me a complete evocation of what London was like near Regent's Park in the 1920s. She talked about the coal man coming around and calling out, coal, coal. She talked about the sound of horses clip-clopping on the cobblestones. She described the smell, the shape of the streets, and I, it was so there right at the start of the interview. And I was so excited, I was almost shaking by this, but I, I just didn't dare move a muscle. And she went in that lovely reverie where she wasn't even seeing me, I think. It was a movie playing in front of her eyes and in her ears as well, which she was narrating to us, the listener. It made such lovely, lovely radio. These moments never fail to move me. I'm also conscious on the radio that there's some artful deception in the narrative arc of the hour. Such arcs are satisfying, again, because they give shape to the chaos. But life doesn't proceed in a narrative arc, and it continues to bump along after the interview is over. It's not finished. So there is some art 
in the transmission of life into a life story. The story we present to listeners is not the mess itself, but more like an ordered presentation of the mess. Like the teenager's bedroom on that one day when the real estate agent has to come around and do a house inspection, that's the day. The portrait is not the person, it's just a portrait. The everyday non-famous guests that we love so much are treated with great care, particular care, by our producers, Nicola and Michelle. These guys will conduct a long pre-interview with the guest over the phone for several hours. As they do so, they help the guests shape their stories. They assemble the facts into a coherent narrative and sometimes gently challenge them on the parts of the story that seem a bit contradictory, improbable or too self-serving. During the pre-interview, the guests will sometimes arrive at a new insight that momentarily floors them. For the producer, this pre-interview process can be exhilarating and harrowing at times. But the process does reassure the guests that they will be treated fairly and sympathetically and that we'll do all we can to make sure that they're fully understood. When the guests arrive at the studio, they're made to feel as welcome as possible. It's really easy to forget the ABC can be an intimidating place for people who've never spoken on the radio before, who are worried they're not important enough or famous enough to be on the show. And listening to someone for a whole hour is a really powerful thing. In 2011, I went to meet Ira Glass, the host of the consistently brilliant show This American Life in New York City in their offices. And he asked me how our show worked, and I said, I told him, and he said, wow, he said, that's an incredibly powerful thing to listen to someone for an hour, to let someone talk for an hour. He said that he loved his wife very much, uh, lovely person, but he reckoned the amount of time she was prepared to let him talk uninterrupted was about 45 to 60 seconds, he figured. <laughs> and so an hour, you give someone an hour, that's amazing, it's really powerful. Fortunately for us, people are more likely to open up in front of a microphone than they are in front of a camera. Radio is a far more intimate medium than TV. It comes to you not blaring across a room, but mysteriously, almost like from somewhere inside your own head. Radio is also profoundly democratic. It places the great and powerful at the exact same level as a guest with a compelling story whose name is unknown. And we treat them exactly the same way. So, you don't get a head start if you're a famous person in this kind of a format. No one can see how beautiful or famous or rich you are on the radio. That's one of the most beautiful uh, egalitarian forces that exist in the world of public radio in particular. There's a kind of noble nakedness in all of this. Jay Allison, one of the pioneers of public radio in the United States, once said, and I'm quoting him here, radio gets inside us, lacking ear lids, we are defenceless, vulnerable to ambush. Sounds and voices surprise us from within. Our tool as radio producers is oral story, the most primitive and powerful. Invisibility is our friend. Prejudice is suspended while the listener is blind, only listening. We podcast conversations right from the start, but I have to admit that for the first years of the show, I didn't bother to listen to a single podcast. We treated the podcast as just another damn thing we had to do at the end of the day that would stop us going home half an hour earlier. It was around 2007 that I finally bought an iPod, remember those, and downloaded some outstanding public radio shows from the United States like This American Life and Radio Lab, and this changed the way I make the program. I imagine now, when I do the show, the start of every program to be like that moment when you go to the movies, when the trailers are finished, and the lights dim, and the curtains part a bit more, and then the movie starts. It's like you're going into a kind of a dream world almost. 
the ABC began to make promo spots with the tagline, spend an hour in the life of someone else. Because that was the pleasure of it. Listeners could take a brief holiday from their own lives, from the burden of selfhood, from the quotidian business of everyday life, reverse parking, making a sandwich, picking up the kids. And they could travel weightlessly through the life story of the guest and then return refreshed into themselves one more, once more. Like I said, radio can have enormous didactic momentum, but that momentum can be easily derailed by a cliche and sentimentality. We keep a watching brief against lumbering try-hard adjectives like tragic and, worse still, iconic. <laughs> I try to avoid polite euphemisms. When people die, I say they're dead. I don't say they've passed away, or worse still, that they've passed. <laughs> passed what? I avoid guests who are prone to sustained, humorless polemic. I don't much care for gurus or sanctimonious people. For my own part, I tried to avoid talking to listeners like a priest or a priestess, the old radio presenter model where you impart knowledge down from on high like some godlike figure who knows everything. Ira Glass calls this the mask of omniscience, and it's a terrible lie. Worse still, it makes you afraid to express curiosity, vulnerability, discovery, and humour. When I started at ABC Radio, the standard thinking was that no, I was told this, no interview should go longer than seven minutes, because after that, people will just tune out. But it turned out there was a great hunger for a well-curated, long conversation, particularly in a media environment, where so much space is taken up in a boring and destructive culture war, where, as one comedian put it, everyone is angry about everything all the time. As profits conti continue to shrink, there are plenty of, many of media operators who have figured out their best hope of survival is to provoke fear and rage by goading people to run towards their tribes. I think public radio at its best can take the nation in a different direction. Public radio, as it does engage with the great diversity of modern Australian life, tends to create shared sympathies between people across the nation, between people who might otherwise mistrust or disdain each other. The ABC, with its strong connections to rural and urban people, to young and old Australians, to the first Australians and to those of us who came later, is constantly attempting to construct a kind of commonwealth of shared sympathies. The ABC, at its best, tries to convene the nation in conversation and to acknowledge our shared humanity. And I'd like to finish with this thought. Australians continue to place a great deal of trust in the ABC. This trust rests on a fundamental expectation that ABC journalists will speak truth to power. That in turn rests on an expectation that the ABC's board will act to defend the broadcaster's independence against political interference from ministers who believe it is they who fund the ABC. They do not fund the ABC, it is you who fund the ABC, and we, the employees, are your servants, not theirs. I hope what's left of the board of the ABC will never again lose sight of this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Actually, this is two firsts. 
first, they started clapping when you came in, and second, they started clapping just before you finished. <laughs> so thank you very much, Richard, for your uh, extraordinary and enlightening lecture and for linking up so beautifully for us that... Um, that long oral uh, storytelling tradition uh, with the, the beauty of the voice and of the invisible. And I'm looking at my colleague here, Kevin, whose great love for oral history has always been around the invisible and the beauty of the voice. So thank you for bringing those two things in together uh, for us. I think we also give you a prize for pronouncing more Icelandic names than have <laughs> ever been uttered in this theatre before. <laughs> and now we have a few uh, a time for a few questions and as always um, please can you wait, put your hand up and wait for a microphone to come to you up the back here Stuart so that we can um, those using the hearing loop can hear you and we can record you. Hello. Good evening thank you Richard. I just wanted to know what you were going to say at the very end. <laughs> at the very end? Yes. yes. Oh right that last sentence. Oh, you didn't hear it? Oh, bloody hell, I have to bring it up again. It was really important, whatever it was. I just wanted to underscore that it's the Australian people who fund the ABC. We, the employees of the ABC, are their servants, your servants. And I hope what is left of the ABC board will never again lose sight of this. That's all I wanted to say at the end. That's the end of the questions then. That's good. Uh, happy to take more questions though. Anything you like. Hello. Hi, good evening, Richard. Uh, how do you find the people you have conversations with? Uh, producers hang around in the streets just mugging people <laughs> occasionally. Um, we have a thing on our website where we invite people to suggest a guest. We're always on the lookout too. We ask a lot of people. We sort of, we've, it, it's always, it's a real beast to feed making a, a daily program, so between Sarah Konoski and I, we're always asking around, our producers are always asking around. Uh, we have uh, suggestions through the website. Only about maybe one in 50 of those suggestions will be right. A lot of the time people want to suggest really lovely, good people who deserve a pat on the back, but you can't pat someone on the back for an hour. Um, and, and then you end up with a show that's full of saints, and that doesn't feel like real life. Uh, so they're the majority of the suggestions we get. This person deserves... I won't be listening on that day, they think, but, you know, yeah, this person should be on the radio. Um, so it's, 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 it's quite hard to find. But when you do find them, oh, my God. Like, like best two examples I can think of is Gregory Smith, who was, uh, who was, we were contacted by the University of New England. They said, we've got this academic with this interesting background, history of mental illness, lived in a forest for 10 years on his own. Uh, recently featured an Australian story after he came on the show and has written a wonderful book too. And so we found out about him and went, oh, my God. Um, Jill Hicks, another amazing example. Jill, uh, I found out about Jill Hicks when I went to lunch with a friend in London who said, oh, what's your show about? And she said, oh, you should do Jill Hicks. I'm doing, uh, uh, you know, she's an amazing person. I've heard her speak. Where does she live? Adelaide. Oh, my God. So we had Jill on and she was incredible. So it's through that process, really, of emails, asking around. Um, it means, I, means it, when I go to the supermarket, people bail me up. <laughs> and... I say, oh, I'm just trying to buy cat food. Uh, I, and I can't concentrate on whether... Can, can, can you send me an email? So that's, that's how it goes most of the time, yeah. 
It's, it's not an easy process. We are very reliant on books, published authors. Um, when there's a book, I read the book, or Sarah will read the book if she's doing that, that guest, and we write the brief out of that. And that's, they've done all the work of com, you know, composing their life into in order. But not all books, wonderful, some wonderful books, uh, memoirs, won't work for our program. And that's no um, issue with the memoir or the book, um, which is a, might well be a wonderful book. It's just because I can't figure out, like with Geesley Saga, how to turn it into radio. That's, that's it. More questions, please. Gentleman with their stylish eye patch there. Hello, sir. Uh, thanks, Richard. Um, I just want to congratulate you on your interview style. The way I think you're the master of the open question. And well, thank I you. wanted to ask you to imagine yourself with Constantine the 11th in your studio. What question would you ask him? Oh, my God. I would... Oh, I, wow. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, there's so many stories. I mean, I, I, how do I even start? I mean, uh, I'd want to know a lot more about his earlier life because I couldn't find a thing out about that. I knew he was the governor of a Greek uh, of the Peloponnese before he was brought into the throne. Um, he, how, how reluctantly he assumed the throne? Because the accounts say that he was very reluctant. His brother had died, and that's why he'd become emperor. And he knew the final crisis was almost upon them. Um, he, he didn't know how bad it was until he got there. He didn't realise how badly the city was surrounded by, by the Ottomans. Um, he almost succeeded. He, they almost succeeded. The, 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 final, the final invasion was, the, was won by the Ottomans on, on, on the most narrowest of circumstances. They almost did it. They almost held out. But even if they'd held out, it would have been overrun maybe uh, five years later after that, I think. I, I wanted to know, I would want to know where he got all that steadfast, steadfastness from. He did agree to absorb the Orthodox Church into the Catholic Church because that was the Pope's price for help. It was the Pope was really bloody-minded about that, uh, but he didn't mean it. And I'd like to ask him if he did mean it because I know he, I don't think he did. <laughs> I would like to describe the final, final uh, service that was held in the Hagia Sophia. This is the last Christian service that was ever held in the Hagia Sophia, uh, which where it was flooded by people. They knew what was coming that later that night. And it was filled with people. People who've been to the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, it's, I think it's the most beautiful building in the world. And this is an evening service, and the emperor came in, sat down, took part in it. Um, I think he kneeled, I think he received the sacraments, stepped back, so, that, so the account goes, bowed at the congregation, and then walked out, and a great wail came up from the congregation, because they knew what that meant. Um, I would also like to ask about the weirdness of the last week. It turned out there was a volcano that erupted somewhere in the Pacific a year before the last siege. And it, it seems like it's likely that it, this was the reason why there were these bizarre atmospheric disturbances over the city of Constantinople, over most of Europe, I suppose, in that final uh, summer there. Uh, strange, a strange appearance of St Elmo's fire on the spire of the Hagia Sophia, which, of course, looked to them, this ring of electricity going up the spire looked like God had left the city. There was an awful uh, rainstorm that came down that dropped big black drops from the sky. Oh, God. It just it sounded like they'd been so wicked in giving themselves over to the Catholics that God was going to kill them all. Um, they couldn't help but draw that conclusion. I would love to... I, the most pleasurable thing about writing that is to honourably enter the medieval mindset. And I don't do that patronisingly. I, don't, it's, I think it's really wrong for people or historians to step back and go, oh, they were so superstitious back then and we know better now. We're cleverer now than people. We're no cleverer than they were. My, my view is that we are just as they were, people trying to live their lives with limited information about the world around them. That's it. So 
I could keep answering this question for ages, but I probably shouldn't. Um, <laughs> but thank you for that question. That's a really good question. Another mic? Another question, please. Okay. I, I thought I saw somebody there. Uh, okay. uh, gentleman here. Ge somebody here. <laughs> two mics. <laughs> if you use both of them, that'll be very rock and roll. Hello. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you for, again for your radio program because it's uh, been a great inspiration. Um, I'm a, an English teacher and at the start of this year I had my Year 7s uh, interview an elder and put it into a podcast of less than 20 minutes and I got 60 stories of people from all walks of life in a similar way than, that, as you have and, uh, and that was a great honour for me to be able to listen to those stories. Um, but my question was similar to um, the statement before, your open questions, what one piece of advice would you give to uh, a young interviewer? Keep the question really short, as short as you can. I, I break that rule all the time and I'm, I feel terrible when I listen back and I hear, oh God, and I think to myself, stop blathering. I mean, God, just stop blathering. I can hear it and I go, Ugh. it really bothers me. Um, so ideally, keep the question short. Two of my favourite questions are, why and really? Seriously. <laughs> Why, for obvious reasons, if you go, why? They, they, people actually can't help but tell the truth if they don't have much time to think about it. They tend to blurt out the truth and then respect the answer you get. Um, this is a flaw I sometimes see in political interviews. You get, you get an honest answer from a politician and they go, aha, but your leader says the other thing. Aha. And so then you feel this retreat from candour into talking points, blah, blah, blah. What was that about, you go, in, in an interview? So if you get an honest answer, respect it, I think, and don't try and make it impossible, don't try and tie up the person in knots. Uh, really is another good one to ask as well, because if it's sort of bumbling along and someone's sticking to their talking points and you go, really? They'll either go, well, nah. <laughs> and that's better. Or they'll go, yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and, and again, then, and now they're being natural and now they're talking like a normal human being. Um, another thing is I just try and keep my mouth shut a lot of the time. I really do. I really try and keep my mouth shut. Like I said, watching Larry King interview Angela Lansbury and thinking he was more... In I don't think I'm more interesting than Angela Lansbury. I just don't. And Larry King isn't more interesting than Angela Lansbury. And when you've invited someone to tell their life story that you want to take up all the time saying what you think about this and that, God, it's a bit embarrassing. It's a bit, you know, a bit like a mad uncle at the Christmas table, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yes. Thank you. I think we have run out of time now, but I think we'll remember that. Um, ask short questions and respect the honest answer. They're, they sound like pretty good life lessons, actually. <laughs> um, we have run out of time, but I hope you will join us for refreshments um, upstairs. Um, tonight, you certainly have the opportunity to purchase Ghost Empire and Saga Land from our bookshop for a 10% discount tonight. And Richard has kindly agreed to sign copies of his books. Um, now, of course, it's through the generous support of our friends and supporters that we can do things such as tonight's wonderful lecture. Um, and I know you want to thank me, uh, join me in thanking Heather and John again for supporting tonight's lecture and in thanking me for our inspiring, challenging and certainly entertaining 2018 Seymour Biography Lecturer, Richard Feigler. <laughs>